nobody emerges from childhood unscathed. We all get a little bit damaged. That's the reality. You don't have love for yourself, just like you don't have the power of speech and communication to talk to yourself. It's not for you. Whatever you have is not for you. If it's such a compelling argument, why are 8 billion people not following it? Right. I think we just hit the 8 billion mark <laughs> on the planet. I think that that is the answer. Because it is the truth, 8, 8 billion people will miss it. <laughs> okay, so then we go from there. Huh. Welcome to From the Inside Out. I'm Rifta. And I'm Ida. We're mums, wives, entrepreneurs, and friends on a mission to change the world for the better, one conversation at a time. Through interviews with world-renowned thinkers, leaders, and our everyday heroes, we bring you wisdom, insight, and practical tools that can change your life for the better. We believe that every experience provides us with an opportunity for learning. Our job is to be patient with the process of growth and trust that our journey will lead us to where we're meant to be. Words can inspire us, but it's only once we channel that inspiration into action that we begin to experience the positive change we want to see in the world. We hope this platform will inspire you to create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. Thank you for being here and let the conversation begin. This episode is dedicated to my dear sister-in-law, Sarah Shira Hana Bationit, for a speedy and complete recovery. It's very meaningful to be able to dedicate something inspiring and hopefully will create positive change for all of you. For my sister-in-law, who really represents our podcast from the inside out, she is beautiful from the inside out. She is strong. She is always changing and growing. She's a very positive person. She is so giving and thoughtful and in tune with everybody around her. She's the most dedicated wife and mother and friend and sister-in-law and sister and daughter. Everyone who knows Shira knows what a unique and awesome person she is. And we wish her a complete and speedy recovery. And I want to thank everybody for all the Tehillim you've been saying because it has done so much. We have seen positive improvement, light at the end of the tunnel. And I have just really felt and seen the power of your Tehillim. And I want to thank you and to please continue saying Tehillim Fashira and her capital is 31 Lamad Aleph. And just know that your Tehillim helps so much. And Shira, I hope you enjoy this episode when you, as you listen. Um, can't wait for you to hear this. And I love you so much. And thank you, everybody. Ida, Ida, thank you for getting this episode out in time for Shabbos. Every prayer is life-changing. I believe that. And so I've been saying Kapitol 31 Lamed Aleph, and uh, I look forward to hearing good news for you and your sister-in-law and for the family and for anyone who needs a refuah shalema, a speedy recovery. Everything should be good. Everything will be good. Amen. We want to share some news that we received this week, and we are uh, currently in the top 5% of all podcasts, um, also being listened to in 101 countries, which also mind-boggling. So thank you. We're so grateful. Thank you. And we thank Hashem. And uh, we hope you enjoy this very unique episode. We we had the opportunity to interview three rabbis. We 
look up to and are inspired by Rabbi Shaestaub, Rabbi Manus Friedman, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. And we got to hear three perspectives on life and everything in between. This is actually a, a follow-up to a previous episode that we did with Rabbi Manus Friedman. And in that episode, he we talked about relationships. Several listeners reached out to us about that episode. Um, we definitely felt like we only scratched the surface and we needed to unpack that conversation a little bit more to bring in a, a panel of people who offer different perspectives on similar issues. These are not just rabbis. These are rabbis, scholars who have spent thousands of hours working with people and helping people and speaking on panels and giving workshops and classes. And yeah, enjoy. So we hope this episode brings everyone healing physically, spiritually, in big ways and in small ways, always lead to big ways. Hello. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much to our three rabbis who we respect so much for being here today, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, Rabbi Manus Friedman, and Rabbi Shays Taub. Thank you to Amudim for bringing us here today to do this panel. What we want to bring to the table is that everyone here who is sitting here and listening to the podcast can come to a place of um, hearing different perspectives and also understanding that all perspectives can be truth. We'd actually like to address the first question to Rabbi Shays Taub. We had you on our podcast to discuss parenting. Our first question we really wanted to ask you about is um, trauma, because first of all, Amudim is, is a lot about uh, dealing with trauma. And once we address our own traumas, we are better suited to raise healthy families and live healthier lives. And Eden and I feel that we are lucky to live in a time when it has become more mainstream to become vulnerable and address traumas. But then at the same time, there is a conflicting notion of stop talking about traumas already because we get stuck in our own traumas. And we want to know how do we address trauma in a way that doesn't involve blaming and um, alienating our loved ones and destroying families, but yet being able to address it in a healthy way where we can grow as human beings. Before I start, I just want to make a disclaimer that uh, trauma is a, a clinical term. And when I'm speaking, I'm speaking as a rabbi. Those are, my only qualification is I'm a rabbi. I, 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 I want to be careful that no one misunderstands that I'm trying to overstep my boundaries and make any statements that have clinical uh, implications because that's I'm not a mental health professional. I don't have that training. And so I just want to be very careful. Everyone understands um, I'm staying in my lane. Um, so maybe I won't even use the word trauma. I'll just, I'll use, uh, I'll use a, maybe a longer term, which is stuff happens to people that affects them. Uh, a lot of times this happens during childhood. A lot of times it happens either with family or around family. And I guess what you're asking, I think what you're asking is, um, <laughs> How much did our parents really ruin our lives? Right, that's basically <laughs> that's it in a nutshell. Really, okay. <laughs> and, and, and the reality is nobody emerges from childhood unscathed. We all get a little bit damaged. That's the reality. Some more, some less. But your question was more about like what to do with that reality in a way. I'm going to rephrase your question because 
in a way that honors the fact that people have been hurt as children, and at the same time, that doesn't turn that into a life script where, oh, because of this, now I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm incapable of, of, of living the life I would have lived had that thing never happened to me. Yeah. Basically, That's did it. I get the question? Yes, yeah. you did. Oh, thank God. Okay. So I said I'm answering as a rabbi, and this is a very rabbi answer. And that is the only way to really, to my thinking, to really properly process this truth and honor this truth, but yet to move on from it, is through faith in God. Is to look at your life as written by the divine author. Nothing happened to you that wasn't under his domain and his loving wisdom and and care. And even though a lot of it can even be horrific, and from our perspective, we can't process it, and we're not justifying it, and we're not excusing it, and all the standard disclaimers. But for the person himself or herself, I think it's very, very important to realize your parents didn't mess you up. Whatever life you had, whatever childhood you had, whatever experiences you had, that was your journey. Some of it was hurtful. Some of it caused some breakage, which you have to heal from. But ultimately, my life is not some imagined ideal life that could have happened, should have happened, if such and such would have never occurred. That, that's, that's not reality. The, your life, your perfect story, your perfectly imperfect story is whatever happened with all the, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything else. So I really believe that the healthy way to start to process this stuff is for each person to sort of embrace the godliness of their own personal story, to use the real technical Hasidic term, the hashkacho protest of it, that Hashem is specifically engineering and orchestrated the details of our lives. And when you can start to see the, the divine authorship, I think you can honor the reality of what happened, but also become, uh, become strengthened by it rather than defined by it. Yeah, that, that, that I, speaks I to me. True. That speaks to me, yes. <laughs> Does it speak to you, Ida? It does, embracing a reality. And we also wanted um, Rabbi Friedman to elaborate, because we've got many messages after the episode about this particular thing that you had sa- shared, was that, in a nutshell, if someone is going to the, down the chuppah and they feel unsure, then they should probably call it off. Because, call off the, uh, going, calling off the engagement, because usually that kind of scenario leads to a difficult or a, um, a lot of trying times in the relationship. So my thought was, first of all, it was refreshing to hear that for somebody who should really call off the engagement. But at the same time, there are many people who will go out and um, date, and they're always going to be unsure, no matter who they marry. And there are also some people that you'll hear them say that they went down to the chuppah unsure, and then they they became very happy. They have a very happy relationship. So how does one know? How, is, how, does one, how does one use that motivation and dedication in the right way to know that they're marrying the right person if perhaps they are unsure? Well, first of all, 
there's unsure and there's unsure. Are you unsure about marriage or are you unsure about your spouse? If you're unsure about marriage, you'll get over it, you'll settle down and you'll be fine. But if there's something about your spouse that you're unsure of, this is going to be trouble. Well, I guess the question is, what is it that you're unsure about? Maybe that's what it is, but sometimes you can be unsure about something and you evolve and you, you don't really know yourself what you want. But this is the process. I mean, it, it could happen, right? The process of getting married, the process of dating is eliminating all problems and obstacles. It's a process of elimination. It's not falling in love. It's not becoming impressed. It's removing or discovering that you have no obstacles. There's nothing going to get between you because everything's good. But I just, can I pause right there? In life, there are many obstacles. After you're married. Yes. But when you're getting married, you should see no obstacles. Anyone who walks under the chuppah thinking, well, I'll have to handle or I'll have to tolerate, not a good idea. And don't wait until you're, until you're under the chuppah. <laughs> That's the point of going out. The point of dating is to make sure that there is nothing about the other person that disturbs me. And what about if the person doesn't see, oh, I'll have to handle this, or, but it's more like I don't feel that spark that I want to feel? That, that's negotiable. Could be you're too nervous to feel the spark, you're not close enough, you're still a little awkward with each other. In other words, it's not what you do have that is important, it's what you don't. You don't, you're not uncomfortable with each other's presence. You're not uncomfortable with each other's thinking. You're not uncomfortable with each other's looks. There's nothing making me uncomfortable. Does That's this need to be like being. an ongoing thing? Meaning there's this whole notion of don't make a permanent decision based on a temporary emotion. So let's say one day, you know, someone's feeling like this is the right, this is my Bashart. And then on another day they are having doubts, but then they, they're kind of wishy-washy. Um, does, does the same rule apply? Once you're married? Before. Before. Yeah. There we'll get to be, once you're married. Yeah. <laughs> there should be no doubts before. None. Not even when you haven't had wow. coffee yet and you're not having a good day and you're... Okay. Do, you, do you, um, Rabbi Taub, uh, Rabbi, we'll start with Rabbi Jacobson. Do you, um, do you feel the same way? Not necessarily um, because... What happens if it's a trivial thing? You know, uh, you went on the first date and you liked everything about it or the second date, but the way when she smiles, there's a certain twitch. And then when you walk into the chuppah, you suddenly remember that twitch. I I'm not sure if Rabbi Friedman would say, okay, call it off. Would you? Absolutely. <laughs> That's what I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so finally we've disagreed. Yeah. <laughs> it, it may be a little too late, yeah. <laughs> but that shouldn't have happened. See? Yeah, you had said on the podcast, if you don't like a freckle, don't. You said if you don't like the other person's freckles, don't marry maybe them. That's like, the <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why the color covers the face. Maybe. You said what? Maybe that's why the color covers. Oh, face. <laughs> that's a good question. Shouldn't be any last minute. <laughs> last minute. A person <laughs> says there's something that bothers me about him, but it's so trivial. I'm embarrassed. Well, don't be embarrassed. You're trivial. Trivial things bother you because you're trivial. Yeah, but that person can grow out of. They can Maybe. Or it'll bother you more once you're married and stuck. 
Look at I, this. I don't know if this is the place to debate the issue. I'm sure there's a lot more to be said because the fact is that the Rebbe, for example, was very opposed to people breaking engagements. Even though halachically and technically it's not as bad as divorce. But the, so we have to discuss why. You know, why is that? Did the and Rebbe ever write why? My understanding, I don't remember if I saw exact reason, was because in a way it's like you've given your word. So it's not a halachic obligation to stay engaged. But if you start breaking your word, it's a very uh, disturbs the whole element of trust and stuff like that. And of course, the Rebbe didn't want to have also a situation where where people just, okay, you know what? We were engaged and uh, tomorrow we're not. Um, but I think it comes down to case by case. I don't think you can, um, I mean, I, 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 am, I know Rabbi Freeman quite well. I don't think he's <laughs> stating a blanket statement, everything. You have to know what you're discussing. Are you stating a blanket statement? What, what I'm saying is, don't let it get to that. I'm not saying when to break off a, an engagement or a marriage. Avoid that. If you know what you're looking for, and you know what you, who you are, it won't come to that. Why did you get engaged if this bothers you? By the way, you shared, if you know who you are, and... Often, I mean, you even shared it on our podcast that you said it's a healthy thing to get married young. Like, you highly recommend that. Now, when you're really young, you don't necessarily know who you are. Actually, you don't really know who you are. The truth is you only really know, get to know who you are once you're married and you're sharing a life with somebody. So how are you meant to know who Maybe you are? Maybe that's not young enough. That's why. Because <laughs> you're too old. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. well, you know yourself at the time. Of course, you're going to grow. You're going to mature. But you got to know where you're standing now. The question I would pose is, what do you do with all the people who don't know? And sometimes their priorities are off. That's even right. in the dating process. Let's not even talk about going to the chuppah. In the dating process, what they think is important is not really that right. important than other things are. So very often the things that are bothering them shouldn't even bother them, but they are bothering them. Right. So what if the conflict is, you know, Rabbi Friedman, you had mentioned it doesn't have to be good for you. It just has to be you um, in a, in, when we had spoken about this. And so how do you balance, let's say a person does know this person is for them, but their parents are against it, and the parents are saying, no, this person is not for you. Um, is that considered a grounds for breaking it off because that's an obstacle, like the parent not being okay with it? That's a whole other subject, but yeah. Is that an obstacle? So you're saying someone's walking to the chuppah and they remind themselves that their mother right. may not like the cow. He's not coming to the wedding. <laughs> she's at the wedding, but she's not yeah. so happy. Well, they, well, they want to marry this person, but the parent is so very. They have to choose: it. you're marrying your mother or your uh, bride, right? Right, right, right. Well, well here the Rebbe's to your wife. instruction was: parents should not get in the way of a couple that who already decided to get married. You can give advice during the process, but if they decided they want to marry each other, stay out of the way. Well, this was actually one of our questions in the, today's generation. Children have, have more free reign. We, 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 you know, we have a different approach today. We, we're, we're here to fulfill our children's needs. I mean, that's one of the approaches. And that um, we've we got to be more understanding of, the, of them. It's their story, not ours. Rabbi Shays Talpert said that, like, this is not our story. This is their story. At the same time, don't you think sometimes we need some gvura to be, you know, we have to have the chesed, but sometimes we need some discipline to be, and, and to share with our children, this might not be right for you, what you're doing, whether it's marriage or whether it's something else. And how do we go about that? 
Parents should offer their opinion. Children should seriously consider their parents' opinion before they come to the decision. Once they've made the decision they want to marry each other, you can't, you can't toy with that. Dangerous. In general, Rabbi Taub, um, giving, what do you feel about parents giving opinions to children? In general? Yeah, in general. In general, I could make it even more general than parenting. I could make it. I could make it about life. Okay, in, yeah. In general, and say it's probably not going to be effective to give unsolicited advice ever. So, here's the trick: if you have an opinion that you think might be useful for somebody to hear, the whole trick is to get them interested in coming to you and asking for your for your opinion. So to me, it's not so much about, well, how should you give your opinion to your child? Or to anyone, for that matter. It's, yeah, it could be to your husband, could be a to a your husband, friend, it could be a friend, a sister, could, a brother, yeah, your neighbor. <laughs> it's about how do I establish a rapport, a context within which this person is going to seek out and actually be interested in what I have to say. So... Most of the work of getting our children to actually hear our advice and consider our advice is about building the relationship. <laughs> if your child feels bonded to you, if they trust you, if they respect you, if you spend time with them, it's almost automatic, meaning I don't like to use the word effortless because then people feel guilty and they, they feel like, they judge themselves that it should be completely uh, without any deliberate uh, effort, but almost effortless. I'll say almost. It's just natural. It's a natural thing. When, when a parent is bonded to a child, a child is bonded to a parent, it's a natural thing. The parent is more experienced. The parent has been given a job by God <laughs> to parent the child. It's a natural thing. The parent is sharing wisdom. The child is listening to it but if you have to chase someone down and say by the way i'm the parent you're the child here's a few things i want to tell you you already lost like imagine somebody well you don't have to imagine like people stand up in the subway and start preaching how many people are moved by that (laughs) you have to attract your audience that's why like every chabad house what do you do come over have some have a meal have some chicken soup (laughs) We'll sing a song. And then when everyone's calm and they decide they're safe and they like you, oh, here's the Dvar Torah. 30 seconds, you know, get in, get out. But I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. It's not my original quote. I think it's Teddy Roosevelt, actually. But people don't care what you know until they know that you care. We love that one. We yeah, use it all and the it's time a, it's in our a great one. It's just, <laughs> I think even you shared it too, right? Yeah. It's a, whatever, it's an old quote. Yeah. But the point is, it's true. It's, un- it's unavoidable. You cannot escape this. So to answer your question again, parents giving advice to children. Yeah, great. But that means if your child is 100% certain that you are caring, you are safe, you are trustworthy, then it's going to naturally happen that you're going to be able to give them guidance and input. 
Sometimes, I mean, you say natural, sometimes it can be tough and you can have a really good relationship with your child because of outside influences, like children with yeah, their but, friends. Yeah, but that's what you're competing with. I, I, I don't want to scare anyone, but when I talk about parents bonding with children, I don't want to say it in a scary way because we should do it just because it's the right thing, not because we're, we're afraid of what could happen if we don't. But fine, let me say it since you brought it up. If you're not the person that your child comes to to share news with, to process events of their life with, to talk about their day with, to just check in about reality, if you're not that person. So there's, there's only two other possibilities. One is they don't have anyone in their life like that, which means they're terribly alone, which is a disaster. Or it means they found someone or think they found someone who fills that role and you don't get to pick who that person is or what values that person has. The healthiest thing is that a parent should be that person. Or at least, let me, let, me, let me rephrase that. The parent should be the first person in their child's life who plays that role. And then as your child grows and has a healthy model for what a trustworthy person is, they, God willing, they'll find other people. They'll find a best friend. They'll find, God willing, their spouse. Well, they'll have that level of trust in their spouse. Um, but... It, it, it's really, it's about the relationship. If there's a connection, then advice and guidance is, is natural. It's, 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 it's easy. And if there is no connection, then you can have all the great speeches in the world. And you can be right. But It's another way of saying last night, Eden and I went to the Ohel, and when we came in, the rebel was talking about when you have a relationship with someone, he was actually talking about our leadership roles. Mm-hmm. And as He's a like lead, the video that plays. Yeah, the video, and, the gem yeah. video. When you come into the Ohel, there's a gem uh-huh. video. It was actually when we came out. When we came out of the oil, the Rebbe was talking about leaders and that the first thing to do is to be kind and have compassion when you're sharing. And after that, you can give rebuke. The translation was rebuke. There you go. So first comes, like you're saying, the bonding and the connection and the caring, and then you can do it. You're saying if they come to you to ask for it. Is that what you're saying? But there's something about marriage that's a little bit different. Every parent knows that they have a vested personal interest in how their children are going to, what their children are going to be. I want you to be a certain kind of person, so I want you to marry a certain kind of person, but you're not that kind of person. So on the parent's part, it's a little selfish. It's what I want. So they have to be careful. Are they giving advice or are they manipulating? Right. So it becomes very like altam voreach. You can't tell a person what they love, what they're comfortable with. They either are or they're not. So there's got to be a little bit of independence or distance where you got to let the kid be who he or she is and not try to make them into your image. So all the great advice, but in marriage, parents and children, I think they're looking for different things. So parents have to be a little uh, cautious on that one. The problem arises when a parent thinks it's not manipulation and they think it's advice. <laughs> right. <laughs> they think it's the best thing for my child and my child doesn't know. And the parent convinces themselves that they're absolutely, they don't even realize that they're imposing. And then when, how do you distinguish when you do see your child doing something that you would disagree with, but the child may have to learn on their own. We're not talking about a five-year-old. We're talking about an adult. And that's why uh, a concept of a rav and a mashpia, 
sometimes plays a role that a parent cannot play because a parent is too close for comfort. Just throw, since we're in the topic, just throwing in another uh, qualification. I mean, the Rebbe says there has to be Hamshachas Halev. It's not good if there isn't. But when there is, you got to respect it. That, you Can you don't, translate Hamshachas Halev? Uh, an attraction. Uh, Drawn. Once that attraction is there, you can't argue with it. You can't say it's a good idea, not a good idea. It's not an idea. Well, you said there's a difference between attraction and infatuation. Yeah. Maybe you can define for us, because you have your book, Creating a Life That Matters. Maybe you can share with us the difference and what love is. Ooh. <laughs> or what love is not. <laughs> yes. What love is and what, what, what it's good for, what it's not good what for. What is love? <laughs> yeah. I think a more important word than love, which is overused and, and lost all meaning by now, vulnerability, right? Somebody mentioned, we already talked about vulnerability. The purpose for marriage, which I think everybody should know before they get married, the purpose of marriage is to not be alone, right? That's what it says. God says, I'm going to create you a helpmate because it's not good to be alone. What's not good about it? What's wrong with being alone? If you're, if you're self-sufficient, why not be alone? It's much easier. <laughs> I joke about this, but Torah says it's not good to be alone. Every human being in the world says, leave me alone. <laughs> so is it good or is it not good? Vulnerability means I am not enough. It doesn't mean I can be hurt. That's the weakness of vulnerability. The beauty of vulnerability is I am not enough. I am self-sufficient. I can do well by myself. I don't need any help, but I am not enough. That is the ultimate vulnerability. And that's what it means. It's not good to be alone. Because being alone is not enough, no matter how perfect you are. I mean, God himself doesn't want to be alone, no matter how perfect he is. Because goodness begins when there is someone else. So being perfect, self-sufficient, almighty, all, all, all powerful, that's functional. There's nothing good about it. Where's goodness? Goodness begins when there's somebody else. And that's because we were not created for ourselves. If we don't teach our children this, maybe they shouldn't even try to get married. Because if you don't understand this, when you talk about bittel or humility or selflessness, this is what we're talking about. It's not about you. Nothing you have love, you're capable of loving. What does pop psychology say? Love yourself. Wrong. Love, you don't have love for yourself. Just like you don't have the power of speech and communication to talk to yourself. It's not for you. Whatever you have is not for you. We have to teach children this at a very young age. And by example. I mean, it could be a slippery slope. 
because then you have, uh, you know, codependency, which can often result in, you know, behaviors that can undermine a person's growth. So how do you, it's interesting because there is this whole notion of independence, you know, like togetherness, but also being apart and balancing the two. Um, and then having self-love, I guess it may be a different kind of self-love, more like a humility. So how do you, how do you balance? Self-love is a given. The question is, what's it for? Why do I have self-love? To give it away. Not to keep it. Just like these people who are worth $200 billion. What are they supposed to do with that? Keep it? It's, it's ridiculous. It's so obviously not for you, even though it is yours legally, according to Torah. It's yours. But who says it's for you? You have right. information. What, it's for you? Of course not. So this whole idea that it's not good to be alone means it's not good to live for you. It's not a life. It's just an existence. Life begins when there's someone else. And that's how you define love. That's how you define marriage. Right. So that is the ultimate vulnerability. Now, it would be nice if the person you're married to is a little lovable. It wouldn't hurt. Wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt. Yeah. Makes it a little smoother, a little more. But the main thing is you can't be alone because you're not enough for yourself. If you feel like you're enough, don't marry anybody. Don't impose yourself on somebody else. You can live with another person when you feel and know that you're not enough, then there's room for another person. Then there's respect for the other person. Love can be very, uh, what is the word, controlling, consuming. You swallow up the other person. Don't let them breathe because you love them so much. Love can be toxic. Vulnerability is never toxic. So you're saying in a relationship, Vulnerability is the focus more than love. Yes. And the immediate byproduct of vulnerability is respect. The other person is significant to you, not just lovable. It's a, a message that um, would be good for everyone to hear today. You know, we, we were recently in Dubai. We were brought out to... Um, sing and speak for, uh, there were a hundred widows brought out from Israel and we did an event there. And the topic that we spoke about were women throughout our, throughout our history and how we're inspired by them. And Ida and I noticed with each woman that we shared about, which were our matriarchs and Rebetz and Hannah and some others, that they went through very trying times. And sometimes it was a whole lifetime. How can we take the past generations, their Kabbalah soul that they had, and I know because I did 30 letters, 30 days with Rabbi Shays Taub, and one of the letters the Rebbe shared that we all have the past generations within us today. But how, we can know that, but how do we really apply it practically in today's world? I think that people often associate Kabbalists all with subservience. You know, the way things were in, this, in the 50s and 60s where, you know, women today feel like, oh, we, we don't want to be that person. We want to express ourselves and... 
yeah. have our voices heard. Look, it's a pretty simple equation. People who are highly motivated do tremendously impressive things. They're, they're able to dedicate themselves to a cause. So then the answer is we need to provide more motivation, which is, by the way, I, I assume the, 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 the purpose of something like this. Why are we doing this podcast forum? We're having a discussion about ideas that are important to people in, in their day-to-day lives. Why are we discussing this? Because we're trying to explain things to people in a format that is digestible, in a format that, that they'll appreciate, where they can think about some things a little bit more deeply. And we're trying to change the way they, they, they see their lives, how they see relationships, parenting, marriage, whatever it is. And once that clicks and they say, oh, I never appreciated that before. I never recognized that. Oh, that's a new, that's a new idea for me then th- that, there's your motivation. And then they can do selfless things. Then they can put themselves aside for a greater cause because they understand that there is a greater cause. But running into a room and saying, everybody, there's a greater cause. Everybody, you know, jump on the floor. What, what, what it, you, you can't just bark things at me that I, that I don't understand. I, now, going back to what I was saying before about trust, about a relationship, there are some people who have earned the right, if they walk in the room and they say to me, jump up, jump down, jump out the window, I'll do it. Because they don't have to explain to me what the greater cause is. If he says there's a cause, he's got me. He, he can explain later if and when he, he chooses to. Okay? But that's because of the relationship. That's the context. So there's the trust there already. But I think uh, by and large today, actually, I I should say, so basically I think there's two jobs that we need to do. One is to win people's trust. God forbid never to break their trust. Uh, And that's why compassion is so important today. Um, So easy. It's so easy to cause somebody ideological problems by emotionally disappointing them. (laughs) Think about that. and, and people don't like to hear that because they, they feel it's, it's patronizing. It's like calling into question the validity of their ideological quandaries. But we're all human. And, and the reality is, if someone had just fe- felt a little bit more safe and a little bit more seen, they probably wouldn't have come to their, uh, their, their quandary. They probably would have worked things out or, or tabled it for a while until, the, until they could work it out. So one thing is, which is huge is to make people feel secure. That I'll just speak about rabbis because I am one. Like People have to feel a rabbi is a safe person. Emotionally. Emotionally safe. You want to talk about parenting. Children have to feel a parent is a safe person. I, I said this uh, in, in, a, in a talk somewhere and then uh, people... I heard. I just said it because I, re- I repeated it. I heard somebody say it, and, I, and, and then I bet I get so much feedback about it. I said, I heard a father say, when my kid grows up and gets in trouble, I don't want her to say, oh, my God, my, my dad's going to kill me. I want her to say, oh, my God, i got to call my dad. And everyone's like, yeah, that's it, that's it. Okay, so whether you're a parent, you're a rabbi, you're a, you're a teacher, you're a community leader, everyone's a community leader in some capacity. Win people's trust. Show them that you're safe. Show them that you're reliable. And God forbid, don't expose them, shame them, call them out. I mean, that's just so counterproductive to any type of education. Okay, that's one thing. And then the other thing is that once there is that buy-in, I'll call it buy-in, 
So then you have, an op- you have an opportunity. You have a platform. Someone's giving you a platform. So explain to them what there is to be excited about. And if you explain to them what there is to be excited about, they'll do incredible things. They'll be very dedicated. I think. I just want to say the Knesset Shluchim mm-hmm. was recently. The Deb is a primary example of that. Took a generation of people who, this is, this is, this is current. These are people from today. And a lot of these Shluchim are young people, millennials, okay? But when there's the trust and there's a clear articulation of the greater purpose, you can get people to do amazing things. And, 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 and you look at the Knesset Shluchim and there's your proof. And there's so many crises going on everywhere with mental health crisis. We have a you know, marriage crisis with the divorce rate going up and parents and children are not getting along. There's a lot of division. And um, you know, this, whole, this, this quote, don't be so busy mopping the floor that you don't think to turn off the faucet. So if we're now assuming we're busy mopping floors everywhere and the water just keeps running, what is the equivalent? Like what is, and I'd love to hear from each of you, what is the equivalent of that faucet just running? What, what do we need to um, address or resolve that can help with all the surface stuff that we're dealing with? That's well, I don't know if I really would say this any other time, but in context, I'll say breach of trust is the faucet. Turning off the faucet means... Restoring trust. Rabbi Jacobson. I would add to what Rabbi Taub and what Rabbi Friedman said earlier, um, just to take it to the next level. Not being alone, or the, the, the converse of that is being attached, being connected to the right things. So a lot of talk today about attachment disorder. You know, we all not only thrive, our very essence is about attachment. In Hebrew, ava and echad, same gematria. So love and being united with something is one. Nine months in our mother's womb we spend, completely attached, completely vulnerable on one hand, but totally nurtured, submerged, Loved, protected, sheltered in every possible way. In a healthy home, when the child is born, so even though the umbilical cord has been cut, but the attachment continues. Child is cradled, nursed, loved, prote- again, protected and all. And we don't even know, even scientifically, what, what that achieves. We only know when we don't have it. When you see a child ripped away, God forbid, from a parent very young, that child will never be the same. Adopted children, or if something, God forbid, traumatic happens in pregnancy. You know, once upon they thought that children were deaf, blind, and mute, and nothing affected them. But now we know it's the exact opposite. So healthy attachments will create healthy attachments. So as you grow older, you've been given the security, you've been validated, you've been loved, so you have a, there was self-respect. You know, I'm talking about the best-case scenario. Confidence. So now, when the time comes to leave the nest, you have the confidence to spread your wings and build your own nest. And you won't bring all your phobia and neurosis and phobias and fears and insecurities and inhibitions into the, in your relationships. Again, I'm talking best case scenario. Take away healthy attachment. That doesn't mean the person doesn't need attachment. It just means that they don't know where to find it. 
So they're going to find it elsewhere. They'll find it sometimes in neutral places, but very often in destructive places. What do you think an addiction is? An addiction at the end of the day is an unhealthy attachment. You know, someone that is uh, mediocre will have mediocre addictions. Someone who's passionate is going to have passionate addictions because you're desperately looking to fill a void. You thought you're thirsty, you're hungry. There's no healthy water to drink. You're going to drink toxic water, whatever will come your way. And, and to the point where you become so attached, you can't detach. So healthy love, healthy relationships, healthy marriage is, of course, not just the antidote. That is the expression of healthy attachments. Ultimately, it all comes down to attachment with God. Because you're not attached to anything that's man-made or mortal. You're attached to something greater than you are, the creator. And that's really the essence of Torah, Yiddishkeit, Chassidus, an interface between the human and the divine. Total transcendence. That's the healthiest attachment. And that's why indeed, yes, God is always used because even in uh, 12 steps or elsewhere, because you can't do it on your own. But it goes much deeper than that when you learn Chassidus because it is the ultimate relationship. The ultimate achdus echad and the ultimate ava, vahaftas Hashem which we say right after, Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad. So I, I go back to what um, Shay said, Rabbi Taub said before. I do agree that we have, previous generations had things we don't have, but also we have things they don't have. Uh, I would just add one more thing into the equation. They also had oppression. They had what is called they were downtrodden. They were afflicted, poverty, discriminated against. We have freedom. We have prosperity, relatively speaking. That usually creates apathy. So it's like the opposite of Kabbalah's hell, and then you become consumed. So when someone worships their uh, substances or they're addicted to something, the, the antithesis of that is worshiping God. Kabbalah sale and attachment to the right thing, not to the wrong thing. So that's how I would phrase the faucet and the mop. And, and, I, and I totally concur that about giving people the motivation, well, prior to that, the trust, to want to embrace it. Because at the end of the day, the lack of healthy attachments also creates distrust. So there's no way they're going to get attached to something that's beautiful. There's no trust there. And... And that's why very often, I mean, it's a very radical statement to make, but some people have to lose God before they find God, meaning they have to lose the wrong God, the false God. And they have to lose their false, even religion, and the ritual and the cultural, uh, almost addiction to religion to find the true religion. Or we don't like even to use the word religion to find the true connection to, to God. I mean, I know I'm saying a mouthful is a lot here, but that's how I would frame it. And our, and our comforts are both a blessing and can be a, a great challenge. Comforts create apathy, comfort zones, no motivation. So no motivation, you're not going to really have Kabbalah sale, you'll, whatever serves your needs at that moment, and you have all the alternatives, and you know every channel, every convenience, distractions, and people are, you know, we're being inundated, our attention and our senses are overstimulated, so the only alternative to that is to create a very passionate uh, commitment 
Ibergebenkeit, I used before, Bittel, Kabbalah Soil, Mesiris Nefesh, they're really synonymous to something that is healthy, and not just healthy, will allow you to be the best you can be. That's right, somewhat so, yeah. how I would uh, frame it. That requires discomfort. And, to, and what yeah. you're really saying, getting to the, the faucet that is leaking or running, is that we don't know why we're here. The problem is not that we have problems. The problem is when I solve my problems, I still don't know what I'm doing here. And it's a bottomless pit. I solve a problem and nothing gets better. Because I don't know why I'm here. Why did I have the problem? Why do I have to solve problems? Why? Now, in the olden days, only the great philosophers asked this question. And they got famous for it. <laughs> what is the purpose of life? Today, everybody is haunted by this question. It's, be, it's in the back of everybody's mind. The successful and the non-successful. The traumatized and the non. Why? For what? If we can't answer that question, we're not stopping the leak. So how do we answer that question? Well, Viktor Frankl had said that in order to do the how, we need to have the why. The big why. Long before Viktor Frankl, yeah. the Bible said it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when Frankl says it, by the way, he quotes Nietzsche. Interestingly enough. <laughs> okay. Well, they say Nietzsche said God is dead, and God said Nietzsche is dead. <laughs> yeah, the last And word. there are those who believe that when Nietzsche said God is dead, he wasn't celebrating, he was warning society that without God, you're in trouble. So he was actually... Uh, and he was also revealing that the God that he was exposed to was never alive in the first place, was uh, yeah. stillborn. So the question of why am I here... If you don't answer that question, you haven't gotten to first base. So answer, for, answer it for us, Rabbi Friedman. <laughs> I, I must say, the question of a wise person is half the answer. The question is, is the, answer. The, the journey to the answer. If you don't ask it, you're definitely not. But I don't want to put... But it's so good to hear children asking it. By the way, Rabbi Taub said in his uh, 30 Letters, 30 Days, the answer is always in the question. The problem defined is half solved. What do you say? Prob the problem, defined, problem defined is, is half solved. Said it. Did I say that? No, no she I think said, I said, I said the that. The answer, yeah, you, you said a problem defined is half solved. Once we could define what the problem, or once we can actually articulate the question well and understand the, the question. The Hasidic expression, Yediyas Hamach Lechetzi Rufua. Awareness of the problem is half the cure. Right. Or but the right, right, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. why are we here? Oh, you're going to tell us? It's, first of all, it is the best proof that there's a God. Why are we even asking that question? Why are we tortured by it? If I don't know why I'm here, I can't live. Why? What do you care? Who says there's a reason? There's no reason. Just enjoy. Can't. We need a reason. <laughs> because there is one. See, that's, we're not all crazy. The fact that we're looking for a purpose means that there is a purpose. Nobody is homesick if you never had a home. That's just pathology. We have a purpose. And we need to know what it is. So, where do you look? After COVID? 
You know you're not going to look into politics. You know you're not going to look into science. You know you're not going to look into medicine. What's left? Where are you going to look for that answer? By definition, purpose means there was a purpose for you to be born. You can't have a purpose after you're born. You can't make up a purpose for a car after you build a car. The purpose has to precede the fact. So when you say, what is my purpose? I don't have a purpose. I am the purpose. But whose purpose? Obviously the creator. Like the story in the Gemara about the sage who saw a guy on the road that was very ugly, and he said to him, you're so ugly. And he said, don't complain to me. Complain to my maker. And he wasn't so ugly after that. Because he recognized that there's a creator. I don't make myself ugly. I was made that way. Well, by the same token, I didn't make myself smart. I was created that way. So, Purpose, by definition, means a creator who created you with a purpose. Otherwise, there is no purpose. So, you want to know the purpose? Who are you going to ask? <laughs> go for it, Ida. <laughs> well, we need to, yeah, I mean, we're, what direction do we go with this question? Meaning, you're sending them to God? <laughs> you caught on, yeah. That's what I'm hinting at. <laughs> That you wanted but, us to ask you what is our but purpose? Another, another way of saying it is, the leak is my neediness. I need. It's never going to end. But Inf you, we need a purpose. So that's a need. Uh, all my needs are, are the faucet running. And I fix one of them. I satisfy one need. Another one pops up. It's endless. It's frustrating. And it's wrong. That's why it's killing us. We're not needy, but we are needed. Well, then the question is, needed by whom? So in the last years, the Rebbe kept emphasizing and repeating over and over and over, Ani nevresi I don't exist for me, I exist to serve. Doesn't, isn't that what purpose means? I exist for a purpose, which means not just to be me, but to fulfill a purpose. Whose purpose? The one who created me. I was created with a purpose. That's why I feel it, I sense it, I need it. So I have only one need, one not for food, not for water, not for wealth, not for security. All of that comes after the fact. Now that I exist, I need all those things. But why do I exist? The answer is to serve him. That makes me almost indestructible. If I'm here to serve him, what's going to bother me? What's going to threaten me? What's going to offend me? Almost nothing. I'm here to serve. So if I have a trauma, how do I serve with this trauma? If I have a gift, how do I serve with this gift? 
Rabbi Taub alluded to the, well, you kind of said that in the beginning, in the first answer, by taking on the approach that, well, it is the approach that Hashem gave this to us for a reason, is that what right. you were saying? He gave, he gave the trauma right. to us, we were meant to have right. it. So Rabbi Friedman just said the reason. Right. Because usually, when we say God gave it to you for a reason, oh, you mean to teach me a lesson? No, to punish you. <laughs> or to punish me? <laughs> to, to prepare me for Ilam Habo? To cleanse you. Right, right. No, for his purpose. It serves his purpose. You can serve him better with this trauma. Or maybe fixing this trauma is your service. Or you'll be able to help others because you know what this experience is. Always for someone else. If I'm, if I'm living for someone else, you can't scare me. You can't threaten me. You can't depress me. That is the ultimate answer. question is, how do we get there? So that's what we're talking about. You have to explain. You have to reveal. You, have to, you can't demand. You it's can't. actually a freeing thought to think of, um, it's not about me. I'm not here for myself. I'm here for a higher purpose. Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about you know, business gurus and people who um, are like business coaches and advisors, people will come to them and they'll say, well, it's not about you. It's about your customer. Think about your customer. That's what marketing is all about. You want to build a successful business. It's not about you. Um, you have to be able to just fill their need and uh, go through the discomfort and all of these things that are, it's, they're so much easier to, to do for some reason because we're in a career-driven society. So how do we just get into this mindset of it's kind of the same thing. We want to build a successful life. It is, in fact, more pleasant and more enjoyable to do for someone else. Why do we deny that? Right. Why do we keep tell, being told, take care of yourself, cater to yourself? Do it's boring. It's narcissistic. It's a dead end. That's what the Rebbe meant. For my interest, as far as I'm concerned, leave me alone. Don't create me. Don't give me needs. Don't give me challenges. I don't need any of this. For me, Ella, why do I exist? I'm here to serve. It is so liberating. And that's what the children are saying when they say, I didn't ask to be born. It means I don't need to be born. Well, if I don't need to be born, what am I doing here? Make the best of it? No. Not willing to settle for that. So how do we practically, let's say, really anybody, child, uh, an adult, maybe who's struggling or is in a crisis, trying to find their purpose, what's like the next step, the next practical step to move toward that space of, you know, why am I here? Let me figure this out. <laughs> Just something that practical. Is the, the painful part. Everybody says, I need a purpose. I need a purpose. My life, the way it is right now, not good enough. I need a purpose. Give me a purpose. Okay, I'll give you. No, not that one. <laughs> okay. There is a purpose. You can't make it up. It's not a smorgasbord of purposes right. where you can pick and choose. You exist for a given reason. Don't be picky. No, I don't want that purpose. It's not, it's not something we make 
purposes. So if God says, I created you to make the earth holier than heaven, that's it. Take it or leave it. There's no other purpose. Bring God down to earth. Make the world a holy place. How? Okay. That we need to learn. How? What? What? What is fixed? Question is, so how do I do it? As an individual. Of course, I can do all the mitzvahs like everybody else, which makes the world a holier place. But what about specifically, why do I have the traumas I have and not the traumas you have? Who decided which trauma we should each have? Wasn't me. Wasn't you. Why do I have the talents I have? Why do I have the sins that I have? It's all part of a plan. So what is my particular contribution? If you're really lucky, you get to ask the Rebbe, and the Rebbe tells you. That's amazing and very rare, where the Rebbe would tell somebody, this is your purpose. So we're left to taking a hint. Where God puts you, that's where you need to be. What God gives you, that's what you're meant to use. The problems and the gifts and the talents and the whatever. Where you see success, that's an indication. That's where you need to be. So you read the Rebbe's letters, almost every answer is, what are you complaining about? You're in the right place, you're doing the right thing, do it well, and you got a life. What are you? And do it more. Do it better. Yeah. There were some times where someone felt like their purpose was to, to make Aliyah, or that, that, that was what their calling was, or to um, go to a certain place on Shluchas, and then the Rebbe would advise them something else. Like, not always someone's intuition was it like to make Aliyah or to, to do something specific. Was yes. So, a person should was. not decide on their own, this is my purpose. You can't make one up. My purpose is to be a doctor. No, your desire is to be a doctor. Whether that's your purpose, you'll find out. <laughs> if you make it through medical school. <laughs> and if you don't, then obviously it's not, right? right. So don't, don't come to conclusion about purpose. Just follow the hints, and it'll lead you in the right direction. Unless you get better direction from a debit. I mean, that's... Okay, any remarks for by Jacobson? To play uh, the skeptic, if it's such a compelling argument, why are 8 billion people not following it? Right. I think we just hit the 8 billion mark <laughs> on the planet. I think that that is the answer. Because it is the truth, 8, pil- eight billion people will miss it. <laughs> okay, so then we go from there. Huh. Okay. Right. Um, so we have to also remember that the same God didn't make it easy. <laughs> In the Hasidic terminology, he created what we always, our favorite scapegoat. It's called the Tzimtzumarishan, which is a Kabbalistic concept that God concealed his presence. And he allowed us the delusion, if you wish. In the words of uh, God says to Moses, to Moshe, he says, Those that want to make a mistake can make a mistake. So he created a world we can say an agnostic universe, 
where, yes, logic, and if you're objective and looking for the truth, you'll find it. But you can easily distract yourself with all kinds of be hijacked and go to places that are not just not purpose, but the exact opposite of it, destructive life, a narcissistic life, a, a selfish life. So I'm saying it not to depress us, but rather to know thy enemy. Like we said before, uh, know the problem is have the cure. The fact that Chassidus teaches us about this concealment actually means, means to teach us that there is a concealment. That's already good news. Because till, till that, you could always say, okay, you know, go find God, go find purpose. But no, it was intentionally concealed, which is also a vote of confidence that we can't find it when we wish to. So again, it's about empowerment. Go back to the words we used earlier, or used earlier, trust, uh, motivation, passion. And we do want to speak to the animal soul. You don't just want to speak to the divine within us. God also created the animal soul, the selfish one. And teach the animal soul how it's good for you, even in your selfishness, higher purpose. You'll be a better person. And I don't mean necessarily that it has to be done with ulterior motives, even though, frankly, in Judaism, ulterior motives are when you give a child a toy or a prize for studying, that's not... That's that's what the way the child understands value. So this is, I, I mean, I would say this is really where Chassidus especially shines and where the Rebbe shines in the sense of teaching even people who have uh, myopic vision and don't see it all, that how to explain how it's really good for you too. And not just purely Kabbalah soil, just do what I'm telling you, which is of course critical in any army and any military, and so on, but also that this is going to make a better life for you. It is a little bit different to Rabbi Friedman, because Rabbi Friedman's saying it's not about you, and you're saying, tell, you can also share with your animal soul how it is good for you. Yeah, that still doesn't mean it's about you. It just means that this is a way of explaining to, let's call it a, uh, someone who's not on that level yet, that even on your terms, I can also explain how it's valuable. Not a contradiction, because that's what Chassidus explains, that first you begin Shalai Lishma, so to speak. So fine, do it for, uh, fine, you, you do it for Shabbos, you like the food? Okay, at least you'll come to the Shabbos meal. Then you'll discover it's not the food, it's the purpose. Um, and the truth is, it's about really communicating to each child, every person has the language that you need to convince. I mean, the idea, for example, that your life has purpose, Yes, the purpose is not you. It's higher purpose. is very appealing to the animal soul, if you can explain it. Hey, I have a life of purpose, and not just purpose where uh, a temporary purpose, but an eternal one. I mean, in other words, it could be your self-interest to do something that you initially would thought was not your self-interest. That's, that's the point. And then that becomes part of who you are. When I need a Vresi concept, that I was, I was created, means that you you're at your best when you do something for another. You're not at your worst. You're not compromising yourself. But going back to relationships, that when you love another and you give to another, you actually become greater, not less. It's not about, and you come to realize that. So I actually uh, recently wrote a course called Discovering Your Personal Mission, How to Do So. Rabbi Friedman Mentioned a few other pieces. I actually wrote up a formula. <laughs> I'll share it here. I call it the pop plus P plus H equals M. 
So P-O-P-P, as in your personality, opportunities that you have, your unique, uh, the unique places that you've been to or where you are, and the people, that's P-O-P-P, plus P, your passion. What are you passionate about? Nice. Plus H, higher cause. It's not about you. What's the higher cause? Equals M, mission. So it is a, uh, a self-discovery. Who are you? Like, yes, exactly. If you think you want to be a doctor, you don't have anything uh, remotely close to that. You, know, you want to be a carpenter, and that's not your... So very often, life's experiences, what are you good at? What do you gravitate to? Is this going to be a book? Uh, right now, it's a course, maybe. Because you have some good books, to Toward a Meaningful Life. Okay. Um, we, I, I loved your Tishrei book. I read, I read a page every days. day, 60 yeah. days. Yeah, that was excellent. How do you have time to do all these programs that you're describing? Well, yeah. we, we have to read in order <laughs> to share <laughs> one at a time. Share, okay. <laughs> at a time. You have to have something to talk about. Exactly. So for example, <laughs> for example, if I may use both of you as an example, here you found a certain calling in the podcast you do. You clearly enjoy it. You're inspiring many. There's no question this is part of your mission in life. Um, and that's a perfect example because you do it, you're doing it well, you enjoy doing it, and it's helping others. So, uh, so th- I mean, we're using technology. Why did God create technology? He created for, to use it to glorify, to bring godliness into this world. I mean, this was something that really is the undercurrent of every word that the Rebbe uttered, every word of Chassidus, every word of Torah. You know, Bereshit's Baralakim, God created heaven and earth, and then immediately, a few days later, he creates man and woman to serve, to protect. Um, it is simple, but remember, we live in a world where God made it. He concealed it. Once you see it, it's, it's obvious. But, but still, you know, let's put it, let's be honest. Even as we speak about it, I can't speak for Rabbi Freeman and Rabbi Taub, but I have my uh, distractions too. Even when we talk about it and we wax eloquent and so on. You know, the, God is a, quite, a, quite a character. With all the awareness we have, still... You still always don't always feel 24-7 that God is sitting right near you, or else we'd be perfect human beings. I'd love to hear my colleagues comment on that one. Well, Rabbi, I, I'm, I'm perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hashem created you that way. <laughs> Rabbi Tao? said about bald people, yeah. that God created a few perfect heads, and the rest he covered with hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm losing it. No. So we talk about a person, talk about a life, a purpose. So what's my purpose? Your purpose is to go on a podcast and say a bunch of stuff. Or at least for right now, for this hour, that's your purpose. Okay. How? How? It's a story. Like Rabbi Jacobson was talking about how both of you fell into this podcasting thing and it became part of your purpose when he said that i was thinking to myself this is a relatively new thing in your lives this is something you discovered in adulthood but i would say that everything you experienced in your entire life from the moment you were born was leading up to your ability to do what you're doing it didn't just suddenly materialize it was the culmination of all your experiences how you processed your experiences Difficult things that you went through, or even you're going through now, I'm sure. I mean, I, I know this as someone who creates content. A lot of my best messages are things I'm working through. Like, that's why it resonates with people. It's resonant because <laughs> by necessity, I had to come up with something to figure out how to deal with what I'm dealing with, right? 
So the how is like the story. How did you come to this? Not because you met in the back of an Uber, which you say in the beginning yeah. of everything, right? The origin story. That's yeah. important. You got to give the origin story. <laughs> right? But it's not because you... The how is both of you lived lives for as many years and minutes and seconds that you did, had different experiences, and then it converged to a point where now we're going to share our unique perspectives. We're going to read books, <laughs> listen to people, talk to those people, process ideas with those people. But the, the, the how is really how it came to be. And, and the why, <clears throat> which is the most interesting question, well, why? Like, who needs it? Just So there should be, like, <clears throat> just another piece of content out there? I mean, there's so much. Like, nobody could possibly keep up with the amount of content that's out there. There's more people today that have podcasts than actual podcast listeners. So <laughs> why? What, what, what's the purpose of it? So you can get into the micro or you can talk about the macro. The micro is always different for every single person and even for every single uh, moment. But let's talk about big picture. The why is what Rabbi Friedman was talking about. Hashem had a plan. He has a plan. And every single thing that exists in this world is part of that plan. And discovering how it works into that plan, whether it's how my life is part of that plan or how a technology that exists is part of that plan or how an experience I had, or particularly, I think this is the hardest thing, how a painful experience that I had is part of that plan. But whatever it is, or how some... Something that God put into my life, a possession, let's say, something that I own or I have access to or a, or, or a relationship or a network or whatever it is, how is it part of the big plan? That, that, that's, that's the why. So, I mean, we, we didn't really speak, I don't think explicitly this whole time, about the, uh, I'll use a term that I learned from Rabbi Friedman, but then I found out it's from somewhere else. The vast eternal plan. It's, a, it's from Fiddler on the Roof. I know, that's what I realized. But <laughs> for me, it's from Hasidic Thoughts at Beis Khan. I used to listen to those cassette tapes oh. driving in my car, and Rabbi Friedman used the term vast, and I love that expression, the vast eternal plan. But then I found it was Tevye, was the vast yeah. eternal It doesn't matter. The point is, it's a, it's a beautiful phrase. Yeah. But the point is, I don't think anyone here spelled it out. What will our lives look like when God's vast eternal plan is culminated? Well, if we're finding one theme that kept recurring, I think, in this conversation, it's the theme of, of trust and bitachan, is trusting the process, is trusting that our challenges will lead us to where we need to be. Um, and you know, Rabbi Taub, you talked about how sometimes we're best equipped to help others when we experience that challenge that we're helping them get through. And I think vulnerability is a big piece here because celebrities or people in the limelight are seen as like them, like the other, like, oh, that's them. I'm me. I'm experiencing all these challenges mm -hmm. and all these issues. How can I step into my purpose? I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. But I think that being able to share how, no, it's specifically my, my you know, struggle that led me here maybe allows people to say, okay, let me try, at least try to see what, you know, what I went through this challenge for, what, what it was for, why, however we ask the yeah, there's, question. There's an expression, hurt people hurt people, right? And I think even Kanye, Ye, he wants to be called Ye, mentioned it recently as a justification for some behaviors, right? Hurt people hurt people. Um, and it's true. 
It's true. In fact, I think pretty much anytime somebody is doing terrible things to other people, it's because something was done to them. It's not an excuse. It's just, it's a fact. That's the origin story of it. But you know what's also true? Hurt people, people who have been hurt, are uniquely capable of healing other people in ways that non-hurt people are not able to do. So what's the difference between the hurt people who hurt people and the hurt people who heal people? Well, the hurt people that heal people are healing or they're healed. Yeah. And they've transformed that. Yeah. Yeah. So they've healed, they've transformed the pain, which is synonymous with healing. How? And I would say that they found the why in their hurt. And then it becomes purpose. So then what I experienced was part of the vast eternal plan. As long as I'm grappling with why did it happen, why me, poor me, the self-pity, the feeling of victimhood, then yeah, if I'm relating to other people, it's very hard not to transfer that pain onto the next person. But when, when I start to answer questions about purpose, God's purpose, or like Rabbi Friedman was calling it, the purpose. It's not a purpose that you made up. It's not your interpretation. There was a purpose. In fact, before you even experienced what you experienced, there was a purpose which precipitated that event to have to happen, which we only know in retrospect, because it did happen. But it's the act of discovery, or the process, the process of discovering that purpose, which turns the hurt people into the uniquely healing people. Right. I want to share, if I may, sometimes it works, sometimes from the why to the healing, sometimes it comes down to action. I saw a note recently from the Rebbe to a woman who writes to the Rebbe that she was very hurt in her childhood, very abused. Um, I don't know the details. She just, I just see the answer. So the Rebbe says that the Gemara t- tells us, when you pray for someone else in need, God will respond to you first. So commit your life to helping others who have been hurt like you, and that in turn will help you heal, which means help you redirect your pain toward. That's just interesting. Beautiful. You have a center straight to the purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I think also... And acting on it. Go ahead. What you've learned will teach you a sensitivity. It's very powerful and beautiful. And I think what you were sharing about, there's a way to ask the why, I guess, because you can ask the why, why me? Or when you're in that struggle, you can ask why so that that this is part of my journey and growth. We, um, there's a, a doctor, a therapist, who gave us a really cool tip. He's actually a former uh, improv uh, actor turned doctor, therapist in Israel. Right, yeah. that's right. We had, the, we had the conversation, but he said that he was able to apply his improv experience in his practice because life is essentially sort of like improv. You don't know what's happening. And then, so if somebody says <laughs> no something, you have to script. adjust accordingly because it's like, that's the cycle. That's how it works. So maybe that's a nice little kind of tool tip that we can adopt and that, okay, well, everything that happened until now, it happened. So now what? You know the number one rule in improv? Tell us. Number one rule in improv is do not deny. 
Denying yeah. is not funny. So if two people are improvising, one of one walks through the door and says, I'm here with your birthday cake. And you say, it's not my birthday. You killed the scene. The rule is yes and. Mm-hmm. You agree, you affirm to whatever the person <clears throat> said, and then you, t- you, you, you double down on it. You take it up a notch. And you say, yes, <clears throat> it's my 100th birthday. <laughs> so in other words, improv is the most pre-planned thing possible. Well, the direction like is dancing. Yeah. The, the direction is planned. We all know the direction. We all know the form. By the, the way, divine all plan. genius is formulaic. O- only stupidity is original. All genius is formulaic. Do you think we've been improvising here? <laughs> what do you think the audience will... Um, I think we are improvising. I think it is formulaic, and that's not a contradiction. Formulaic means we all know the direction it's heading. Nobody thinks we're going to end this and, and say, you know what? Life is pointless. <laughs> I'm glad that we figured that out. Well, you know, you just stole my punchline. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> Robert Jacobson. <laughs> now you're going to be embarrassed to say it. But say it. Say it with confidence. But we all know the direction. First of all, you want to talk about spoilers. We all know Mashiach is coming. That's the end. The end of everything in the micro, the macro, everything we've been going through as an individual, as people. And it's as, still going to be shocking. And, and it will not only be shocking, it'll be, wow, this is, this is the best ending to any story. But you knew it was coming. So I was saying, life is improvised. Did he say this, brother? Did he talk about the yes and? No. No, to tell him I said it. Okay. And that what is well, we're, we're still, going... We're, still, we're working on a sponsor. For our episode, because we, we, we now have sponsors for our episodes. Oh, that's very good. Yes, okay. it's very So this exciting. is perfect timing. <laughs> so anyone out there? Going through life yes. with faith, with God consciousness, means God is my improv partner. He throws something at me. Something mm-hmm. happens. I did not expect it. No one gave me a script beforehand and tell me, tell me that this is what's going to happen. Don't deny it. Don't reject it. Anger, which is, this shouldn't have happened. That's idolatry. Don't reject it. Say, yeah, this is what happened. And, now double down on it. Use it. Use it. This is, this is the what you are given. Now, it has to be somehow t- tied into the, into the why. So you're not going to find the why by denying what's already true. Lean into it. Lean into it. You know, Dolly Parton said, find out who you are and be that on purpose. People sit in therapy, they talk about who they are, trying to figure out who they are and why they became that way. And Okay. But at the end of the day, you are who you are. Now own it. Now make that your brand. <laughs> make that how you are useful to the vast eternal plan. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. Own it. Don't run from it. We had a girl at Beis Chana. Wow. She was trained from the age of four. She trained for classical dance. Ballerina. Ballet. She trained seriously. Until she was 22, got into a car accident, and her dancing career was over. She accepted the fact that she was not going to be a dancer, but she couldn't accept the fact that she had invested 20 years and now it's, she asked everybody she could talk to, why, why? She had a dream one night, her grandfather came to her and said a few simple words 
and it solved her problem. Her grandfather said to her, live the way you were taught to dance. Whoa. Which is saying the same thing. Wow. Live the way, dance means balance, uh, grace. Live your life like a dance. That's why you were trained. So we need the and. Talking about the grand eternal plan, I don't know why something came to me. Um, you know, we talk about Mashiach a lot. And to me, it always comes down to a very basic question. Can you visualize your life, your actual life? Mashiach comes today. What will it be like tonight, tomorrow? Will the street look the same? Will the birds be chirping? Will you go to the same coffee shop? You know, what will it look like? Because until you don't ask that question, it's, it's fantasy. You know, when we were children, we were taught, I remember our fourth grade t- teacher taught us that when Mashiach comes, ice cream's going to grow on the trees. And we all loved ice cream, so we couldn't wait. Then when I got a little older, I realized it doesn't say that exactly. It says, Madonna, you know, there'll be delights everywhere. It's a letter written in 1953 to a person who owned a dry cleaners, of all things. And the Rebbe writes to him that everything is divine providence, and since you own a dry cleaners, there must be a lesson in, in the dry cleaning process in serving God. To serve God. What could be the lesson in that? So, you know, it's as mundane as it gets. So the Rebbe says, a garment, you buy a new garment, you wear it once, twice, three times. After a while, it gets soiled, wrinkled, dirty. And if you're a, you know, a normal person, or whatever you want to call statechna person, so on, that's put together a bit, you, will, uh, you won't be able to wear it any longer. But come the concept of cleaners, okay, you bring it to the cleaners, they immerse it in water, and not just cold water, warm water, mix it with chemicals. The chemicals get rid of the different smudges and dirt and whatever. And then you take it out, you dry it, you put it under a heavy press, and you have like a new garment. You can do this process many times. And the Rebbe said the lesson is, the soul that you were given is pure. But then life takes over. Life experiences different broken promises, traumas, hurt, pain. And the way uh, the, your garment gets uh, soiled and wrinkled. And you think it's a one-way street. There's no way back. So, no, the cleaners teach us that you take your soul, you immerse it into Ein Mayim El Torah. Water is compared to Torah. Torah is compared to water. But not plain water, but warm water. Varumkeit. Warmth, passion, love, compassion. And then chemicals. Every mitzvah is another chemical that counters the soils and the dirt that, and the grime that we gather in life. And then you put it under a press, which is Kabbalah's oath. The idea that you're accountable, you answer to something greater, and that smooths it all out, and you have neshama again is pure. That's a beautiful letter as it is. That is beautiful. So I was walking up Kingston Avenue, I live in Crown Heights, and I noticed the cleaners. I never saw cleaners the same way again. Right. Usually cleaners (laughs) is when you have to bring the clothing. Now I say, wow, the cleaners. 
the lesson of the neshama. And there, so the next block was another cleaner, <laughs> another one. On Kingston, there are like five dry cleaners. And then on Albany and Troy. And there are cleaners all over the world, yeah. obviously. And then I said, you know, inadvertently, or maybe that was the reason, what the Rebbe did was give us a new set of eyes, how to look at the same dry cleaners, but what it will look like when Mashiach comes. And then same thing with the bakery and the pizza shop even, and the ice cream shop. <laughs> and how about relationships? Because you, know, you can have broken relationships and they can be dry cleaned. We can, we can yeah. so in make other them words, anew. <laughs> in other words, it's not something that you need to always find some you know, supernatural miracle. It's the things that are existing, you're just really seeing them for what they really are. And this includes the positive experiences and also the negative ones we were talking about. It's such a tremendous way of, of yeah. that even the little things you're doing, they all have another perspective. It's not just the utilitarian element. I think the story also gives hope. The mashal also gives hope for a brighter future or hope for your own flaws that you can do something about them. Absolutely. Or hope for your own the Rebbe's words where he brings from Medrash, it's putting the Aleph of, of, of Hashem, Aluf Shalelam Achdus, into Goyla. Because Golos, and Goyla and Gul is the same letters, only one difference, the Aleph. So it's the same reality, but you just added a whole other dimension that changes it from one extreme to the next. Um, I, I remember uh, Rabbi Talbi would share a, an analogy that stuck with me about the difference between pain and suffering. About how, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you, you're walking on the carpet, you step on a oh, piece of Lego, Lego and you say, ouch, that's That was pain. from life experience and I turned that into something. Oh, you actually <laughs> stepped on a Lego? Yes, yeah. I stepped on a Lego. Step on a Lego and you say, ouch, because that's pain. And then you say, oh, why does this always happen to me? And that's suffering. And so acknowledging the pain, the inevitable pain and being able to take that apart from the suffering. Basically, yeah. the pain is the pain. The suffering is the stories we tell ourselves. Tell but conversely, let, let me say it in a positive way. The pain is the pain, and it is. It is you can't, it's gaslighting to tell somebody that pain wasn't painful. But the story you tell yourself, that we normally, typically, the reactive story is some self-pitying story. But you can also tell yourself a very noble story, a very empowering story. So the, the empowerment is the story you tell yourself about the pain, which means, this is what I was saying before, okay, this is the what. The what is this thing happened. It happened. There's nothing I can do now. This is it. And maybe even this is how it changed me. This is how I am changed. This is a fact. Okay, fine. Then there's a why. There's always a why. And the why isn't, like Rabbi Friedman was saying before, it's not really up to my interpretation. It's not what I choose to pick as the narrative. There is a real answer that existed before the thing even happened to you that made the thing happen. And that answer, if we're going to get really, really broad and vast here, is always about Hashem's plan. God wanted a home in the lowest possible world. Low means, first of all, that it's physical, so therefore it obscures spirituality. But also, look at the stuff that happens in this world that doesn't happen in heaven, okay? It's a low world, no question. God wanted a home in this world. What that means is, when I can look at all the what's of my life, or if I want to be really ambitious, all the what's of the entire world, look at the news and everything that's happening in everyone else's life. Look at all the what's, put it all out on the table. 
And to be able to see, like Rabbi Jacobson was saying, looking at the dry cleaners with new eyes, because now you know what it's there for. Now you understand, oh, I never appreciated it with that, with that, uh, that depth before. When we can look at all the what of our lives, all the facts of, of everything, and it's clear to us the why. This is godly. This is for the glorification of our maker. That every single thing that exists attests to the grandness and the infinity of God. How infinite is God? He's so infinite that he can be present within such a world. There's a finite world. Where do we see godliness is in, well, you start off with the paradox. In the paradox. Is it spiritual? Is it material? Is it perfect or is it imperfect? Is it unlimited, limited? And the answer is yes. That is the essence of godliness. So to be able to see perfection and reason and meaning in our lives, that's, that, that's what the dwelling place in the lower realms means. Yeah, and also some of the things that come from that, like Rabbi Jacobs was talking about, that the delicacies will always be as plentiful as dust. Maimonides mentions that. And that's an outgrowth of it. That obviously when everybody sees the reality, then there's going to be no more fighting and selfishness and it'll, you know, everyone will, will have prosperity and security and safety and, yeah. and peace. But the main thing is that we see the why. We see the why. We see that this is all for God. It always was. It was all along. But in the past, in order to see the why, if you lived in the times of Noyach, you had to get into the Teva. You go into the Ark. You don't go in the Ark, you're not going to see the why. In the times of Yaakov, just an example, you had to climb the ladder. If you climb the ladder, you'll see the why. In the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, you had to climb the mountain. Abishtah came down to Har Sinai, but Moshe had to go up. So if you go up the mountain, you'll see. After that, if you have a scholarship, if you're Rabbi Akiva, if you're Hillel, then you'll see. There were conditions, there were demands. The average person could not see, could not see. And then uh, the Rambam came and made it even closer, and then the Arizal made Kabbalah available. There was always something you needed to do or become in order to see when we talk about Mashiach, there's nothing you need to do. God is so close, you don't need to go anywhere, become anything. You don't have to even be about you. Whatever you are and wherever you are, you will see the truth and it will be organic and natural. And what will you see? that there really is no distance between you and God. You're not helping him achieve the purpose. You are his purpose. And then you don't need to be told to do a mitzvah. There'll be no telling. There'll be no forcing. There'll be no demanding. There'll be no commanding. Everything will be real, natural, and organic, and it'll all be godly. So one of the things that Ebba said that was different from previous generations, don't become what you're not. 
Don't look at what you're missing and try to fill it in. Whatever you are doing, do it better. There's no forcing. Godliness will dawn or spring from the earth naturally. If you're pushing, you're demanding, you're not ready for Mashiach. That's previous generations. So don't climb ladders, don't climb mountains, don't get into arcs. <laughs> don't become a scholar, don't become a makubal. Just do what God needs from you right now, the way you are, where you are, because he's so close. There's no need to go or become or change. You're there. Do it. That's Mashiach. Yeah, I mean, practically speaking, you see many people who are chasing a certain dream or a, a certain level of happiness, and no matter what they achieve, they feel like they're on a hamster wheel. But the same thing is true spiritually. You don't have to become a Balchuva. Somebody I was talking to, who was starting to... You made a lot of Balchuva. That was a mistake. <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> that was doing true. Now, this guy actually said to me, he was, he was getting more and more observant. I said, oh, you're becoming a Balchuva. He said, oh, come on, that's so 60s. He's <laughs> so right. In the 60s, if you wanted to get closer, you had to leave mainstream. You had to stop doing whatever you were doing, drop out of college or whatever, go off to a yeshiva, go off to a community, and become something called Baal Tshuva. He says, come on, that's not the way. Yiddishkeit is mainstream. Don't go anywhere. Wherever you are, whatever you are, do what you're supposed to do. God is sitting there and waiting for you. Do it. That's Mashiach. With that approach, if you just take it literally, you can also say, so then what's the point of going to school? Why do we go to, why do we learn Torah? Why are we trying to grow? Why not just, wherever you are, just stay there and find God there. And that's true. But there's, in language of Hasidus, there's what we call the etzem of the divine. And that indeed, I totally will concur exactly as Rabbi Friedman said it, that Mashiach comes as the natural reality. You don't have to climb mountains. You find God on a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of the street, just as a Yom Kippur in the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. um, however, this may be a little more complica complex, complicated to understand. There is also that God wants the structure, and he wants the hierarchy. It's also part of the divine plan. So even when Mashiach comes, it does say there will be teachers and students. Even though we all will learn straight from God, there's an expression, one person will not teach another because everyone will know God. But then it says everyone from young to old. So the Rebbe asked the question, as his father asked the question, so then why are they called Miktana Vagdolam if everyone knows God equally? Because that equality does not de deny diversity. Diversity is also part of the process. And therefore there is a need to constantly grow but not because you're lacking something, but because that's exactly what God wants. He wants you to be. That's why after Mashiach comes, we're not just going to be sitting on a beach and saying, oh, we're delighting in godliness. We will also be working. We're just we're going from good to better and even better and better. It won't be from bad to good, from good to better. And what so, about the present right now? Well, based on the Rebbe's words that we're at the threshold, 
And as Rabbi Freeman said, the generations before us, and we are midgets standing on their shoulders, they accomplished when they climbed their mountains and the ladders that was necessary because that refined a part of existence. And we are accumulatively have all that energy. And as the Rebbe says, so we are on the threshold. So there's that element that God is, as cl- is closer than ever. Because remember, we paid heavy, due, heavy dues. We paid prices. We're not standing here and just, you know, we have thousands of years of tremendous suffering, even before the Holocaust, let alone. That has, you know, if it did anything, talk about trauma, and we look at it as the purpose that it definitely refined us and existence. So we're now able to open our eyes instead of having to fight a war with, with uh, the negative, we can open our eyes and experience it. Or maybe it's... Um... We'll be, we'll be doing where it feels effortless because it's so natural. Look, Maybe in Hayom the, Yom, the, the previous Rebbe says, um, the Rebbe cites that when Mashiach comes, we will, with Benkin, we'll yearn for the days of Golis when we struggled. Because Mashiach won't be a struggle. So it's the question is asked, so what will we, so <laughs> there won't be struggle? So yes, there won't be a struggle from the negative, from being deprived to gaining. The struggle then will be, it says, Sadikim Chachamim won't have, will be restless in this world and in the world to come. Because restlessness is not always anxiety ridden. Restlessness can be because God is infinite, and no matter where you go, there's always more. So it's right. like, again, from godly to more godly to more, like love. Real love in a relationship is not static. You don't come to a destination. Real love is a, right. an endless journey. Well, and it is a challenge to be on the threshold because you don't know if you're in or out. <laughs> so being the last generation of Golos and the first gen that's crazy. Either here or there. I mean, to be with one foot in Golos and one foot, the, the sages, the Chachamim, didn't, they wanted Mashiach to come, but they didn't want to be there when it happened. The ultimate paradox is that people that ourselves, relatively speaking, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, not close to previous generations, but yet we have something that they, they don't have. And that's like the ultimate paradox, because we have gifts that are far beyond our efforts. Like we're, we're reaping the rewards. You're saying gifts that, from the past. Yeah, that our grandparents paid heavy prices for. They died for it. And we are, we have, you know, the Rebbe would very much lament the fact that you have all the gifts, and we don't have that same sense of urgency. Even though there's a limutzchus for that too, there's also there's a merit. But it's a certain. It's the. It's a very. Look, nobody is suggesting turning the clock back, but the challenges of comfort are very profound, and you can get lost in them, much worse than oppression. The Rebbe speaks a lot about that, and that's our challenge. You know, the Bel Shemtov says a beautiful Torah on Samalecha Nafshi, famous psalm. That my my spirit, my soul is thirsts. I'm in an arid and parched land. Then it says, came So too, when I'm in a in a sacred place, I will gaze at you. And the Balshemta says, What's the the flow, the segue? So he he interprets Cain should be read as Halavai. May I seek you and yearn you just as I was passionate when I was thirsty, when I'm not thirsty. When I'm with you, I should also seek you with the same desperation, so to speak, healthy desperation. And I, there's no question that the Rebbe was, went to war 
against apathy and was very much wanted to create desperation for God, but not because of because we're in a concentration camp, because we're running from an enemy, but because we, we just want to experience it because it's so real. I feel that we definitely tapped into uh, the higher purpose from hearing different perspectives and they all speak truth. Yeah. And, well, uh, the infinite possibilities that exist within each person that they have yet to uncover. And hopefully this will be one way to open up the channels to start uncovering your purpose. And happier and healthier yeah. relationships. Yeah.